0: Thank you for making the time to come and chat with me today and getting in front of my audience. We appreciate it.
1: I'm glad to be here. This is an incredibly important audience for Canada because, as I said to you, Jay, if we want to grow the Canadian economy and we want to create jobs, we need people to invest in our province, and that's what you're bringing people here to do. We're, We're doing
0: our best, and I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, and it actually, it's a good segue into our conversation because, you know, One of the main reasons that I wanted to chat with you today is because Canada's economy is largely a resource economy. Um, we got through the great financial crisis with a healthier balance sheet than any other G8 nation as a consequence of leveraging that economy. Uh, we ran a stimulus program, like many countries, but kept it temporary, unlike many countries. We ran a deficit, like many countries, but kept that temporary at the time unlike many countries, when we leverage that economy, it has a lot of power, right? And so that kind of sets the stage for one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about today. But when we chatted last week, one of the first things you said is that the most important issue facing Canadians right now is perceived to be healthcare, but it's not healthcare. It's the funding of healthcare, which comes largely from the energy sector. Could you expand on this for me?
1: Yeah, so we all love our healthcare system in Canada, and um, it's flawed, not perfect, but people really are attached to it as Canadian. And I would argue, Jay, that if you had to name one thing that Canadians felt like we shared in common as a country and that defined us, people would say our healthcare system. But I'm gonna give you two numbers. The first is our healthcare system is projected to grow in cost at a rate of 5.6 percent annually for the next decade, okay. it makes up 40 percent of provincial budgets um, across the country. And according to the OECD, and these numbers are a bit all over the map, but shockingly, the OECD came out with a number that said Canada's economy is predicted to grow at a rate of 0.8 percent in the next decade. So. You you know, we can talk a lot about, we're not going to talk a lot about healthcare reform and saving money in healthcare and all that stuff today. But on the other end of that equation, you've got a very slow growing economy trying to support a very fast growing social welfare system. And so what do we do? We need to grow the economy faster and we've got to grow it a lot faster in Canada if we want to make sure we keep up and continue to uh, support these social programs to which we are all so attached. And I would argue the single most important thing in building Canada and in maintaining Canada to this day has been the resource sector. Oil, gas, metals, minerals. We need to grow those sectors. We need to grow investment, activity, employment, and that's how we're gonna save our healthcare system in Canada.
0: So I just have to ask then, what, um, what do you make, where's the disconnect when the Chancellor of Germany arrives in Canada begging for a natural gas deal, a commodity that we have right now, that they need right now, and our prime minister sends him home, saying he can't make a sound business case for that transaction. However, we can promise hydrogen power, of which we don't have any to export. Um, according to the government of Canada website, it's in the plans for 2050, and we all know how good a 30-year promise is. But what's what's behind this this posturing and this language, Christy? Is there any valid substance, or or what?
1: Well, no, I I, I don't I don't. I mean, I was, I was gobsmacked because I thought, I mean, I spent much of my career in politics building the LNG industry, which we, you know, we didn't have one in Canada, got elected in 2011, and we went whole hog on, on LNG. And so I know my way around a little bit, the federal-provincial relations around this stuff, and went to see a lot of investors overseas trying to raise money for our, for our country, Um, and I'll tell you... Uh, I thought you know, when the Chancellor of Germany, which is not an unimportant country in the world, and the Prime Minister of Japan, which again is not an unimportant country in the world, and by the way, both uh, one of whom is a really major, major and important trading partner for us, come to us pleading for access to our resources because they don't want to buy from the bad guys in the world anymore, that we would decide as a country, that the prime minister would decide, yeah, we want to help you. We want to make sure you have the uh, the oil and gas and critical uh, metals and minerals that are the best in the world. The ones that you know, if a worker produced that product, they went home safe every day after work. You know they got paid a a decent wage. You know that environmental standards were met. And he said no, Jay. He said no to those two world leaders when they asked for our help. And if you ever wonder why Canada doesn't get invited to the big meetings anymore, or why, we, or, why we, or why we get excluded from trade deals when they're being made with countries like Australia. If you wonder why our Prime Minister has to wait for a meeting with the President of the United States, our closest and dearest uh, ally in the world, hmm. it's because Canada doesn't bring anything to the table anymore. We have so much to bring, and instead, the world thinks we're hoarding it.
0: Yeah, thank you for that because, you know, pardon my French, but Canada is a country that could have the world by the balls. We have everything that uh, global trade needs within these borders and access to both the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Um, talk to me about your time in office and how you manage the relationship between the provincial interests and federal policy, and then how that's changed since then to now.
1: Prime Minister Harper was the leader when, um, when I became the premier. And I'm not gonna lie, you know, and I think Brad Wall will say the same thing. I remember Brad Wall came to me one time and he said, you know, um, cause I've been a liberal all my life. I mean, I'm, I'm a different kind of liberal. I don't than, know if you than saw than the liberal.
0: title. I Great. put. It, it was a bit cheeky. Remember when liberals were smart? <laughs> yeah.
1: And Brad has definitely not been a liberal. But I remember Brad came to me at one, um, ministers meeting, and he said, you know, what is it? What is it with you? Because the prime minister hates my guts and he's always so nice to you. Mm. And I said to Brad, I thought the prime minister liked you because I think he hates my guts too. And the thing is, is that prime ministers and premiers never get along. But the thing about Harper was, Mm. although we had lots to disagree about, he really did believe that the federal government Could do no good by getting into the areas of provincial jurisdiction. And he was, vitally, he was prime minister uh, when Canada decided that we were going to make it one project, one approval process. And that was fundamental, it was a fundamental change in the system because, you know, what we were saying as a country is like, look, if the province goes through a, a system and a process that has integrity, that we trust, that we know then we're not gonna duplicate that and add another, you know, it double the time for approvals in the process. And that was really significant um, for uh, mining and minerals, especially in British Columbia, and oil and gas as well. Uh, so, not perfect, but he understood it. And I think Prime Minister Harper understood where money comes from. And of course, everybody in this room, and you know that, none of it comes from more bureaucrats and government meddling every single penny that is created is created by the ingenuity of someone in the private sector who goes out and creates wealth. Money comes from the private sector. And you can't try and smother the private sector and think the money's gonna still keep coming in. So then the government changed and we were faced with a whole different uh, kettle of fish, most notably. The one process, one project, one process um, system uh, got cancelled and we went back to one of each. Now, the federal government is now saying that they're going to harmonize it again. Mm. We'll see if that actually happens. But I can, it was dealing with the new federal government around climate change around carbon policy, around process for approvals, around taxation, around indigenous consultation has really made the system so much harder. And as, I mean, I spent seven years, almost seven years in government, and all I thought about every day was, how do we support the private sector in the creation of wealth? Mm. And every single day um, from 2015, that got a lot harder. 2014, it got a lot harder.
0: Right. Now, just revisiting our previous comment about the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan showing up in Canada asking for natural gas, us turning them away, that's gotta irritate the provinces where natural gas comes from. Are you surprised at all by the emergence of legislation like the Alberta Sovereignty Act and the Saskatchewan First Act, or do you think this is necessary?
1: Well, those are two different questions. Can I, can I pull them apart? One and then the next,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: I would say, I, I'm not surprised in as much as we've seen Western alienation be brewing for a long time. Um, I don't think it's a good idea because I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I don't think it's possible. It's unconstitutional, it'll fail in the courts. And, and, But that isn't what politics is really about, is it? Politics is often just about being able to make a statement. So hmm. my dad used to say um, you know, the thing about Canada is, is Quebec always wants out, and Alberta always wants in. You know, British Columbia just sits on the sidelines and is sort of happy with where we're at. We're not paying that much attention to what goes on on the other side of the Rockies. Hmm. I never thought I would see the day when Alberta would go from being passionately Canadian and wanting in, really fighting for a way in, trying to find a way to get out. And that speaks to, Jay, I think, the intense sense of alienation that people in Saskatchewan and Alberta are feeling now. And I recognize that as a very human thing because what politicians are doing in Ottawa is trying to divide us on so many different issues but especially around this invented conflict between protecting the environment and extracting resources. And they're setting provinces against each other. So what, we're find, what people are feeling, I think, is when parts of the country say, we don't want your dirty oil, we don't want your filthy resources. What the people who work in those sectors feel is totally invalidated. They feel like their way of life is being disregarded. They feel like the dignity of their work is being downgraded. And I think most of all, people feel like the rest of the country is ungrateful for what Western Canada contributes to this country. And I don't think people wanna keep on giving when they don't get any thanks. And worse than that, they get something the opposite of thanks. So, I don't know if it was entirely predictable, but I think a lot of us sort of saw this coming. And I think it is a terrible place for this country to be. So can I add one more thing, Jake, because I know I've answered yeah, this yeah, long. Yeah, yeah, of course, please, no. I think that, you know, you look at the states and we all feel so superior, well, not, maybe not all of us, but many Canadians feel so superior to Americans because we watch all the fighting and the polarization and the things that are tearing people apart. But you know the thing about Americans is they have things that they rally around. Like they really care about their constitution enough that they will fight about it to the death. They have people who, they have people in their country that they can look to, great historical figures, Washington and Lincoln. They had a revolution to to create their country. It's the birthplace of really um, a truly democratic uh, country. And Americans really care about those things together. They have so much that binds them. But in Canada, what binds us together? What binds us together except maybe healthcare? And we don't have a prime minister who today is doing the most important job any prime minister can do which is to stand up every single day and remind Canadians of what binds us, what we have in common, because we have so little that we think about or talk about. Where are the uniters? All we have are dividers. Mm. And we need someone in in Ottawa who's gonna bring us together around common values again because this country could fly apart so easily. And Saskatchewan and Alberta don't wanna leave. Mm. All they want is to be respected.
0: Thank you, Christy. Now, you've touched on a a concept a couple times. I'll call it productive conflict, right? When you were in office, you and Prime Minister Harper didn't often agree, but you would find compromise. You touched on the balance between the extraction industry and uh, environmental protection, and you need both. You can't be all in on one. You need checks and balances to keep the other in line, right, and that's how you strike sustainable balance, more than likely. Which is good, uh, until, right, as you touched on, what is, who would be on the Canadian Mount Rushmore, right? What names immediately pop to mind? Like Wayne Gretzky, you know? I'm not quite sure. Uh, But it's not obvious to us because we don't have those characters. You're absolutely right. That is the role of the Prime Minister. So as long as we have productive conflict, it's great. But when the Prime Minister joins one team and demonizes the other, which I believe is happening now. Of course, you have productive provinces who feel like their back's against the wall, who feel like they've been singled out. And this legislation may not go anywhere because it's un- unconstitutional. But again, like you said, that's not the point. That's productive conflict. We're going to push this forward and call attention to what's going on here. Yes. So, you know, you had a bit of a pessimistic slant on that on that last statement that this could go very poorly for Canada. Um, I want to touch on that, and I don't want to stay on that, but I want to get you to elaborate just a little bit. You know, what's, what is that more dystopian outlook if we can't unify as a country?
1: Well, um, I think you look at, Canada is one of the most indebted countries in the developed, amongst the developed economies. We are one of the, we're predicted to be one of the slowest growing economies in the country. We are strangled by regulation, just layer upon layer upon layer. We have high taxes, which I don't know if, you know, most Canadians really mind that, but they want to know that it's being well spent. We have a, a massive growth in government across the country. The only way to solve these problems is for the levels of government to work together and not fight. Because if we are talking all the time about constitutional issues, when are we going to talk about the regulatory issues that are stifling development and investment in Canada? If we're talking about whose jurisdiction is what, When are we going to talk about how we can even out the tax burden in Canada so we can be competitive with our neighbors to the south? I mean, it's just, it's a huge distraction and it's not like we don't have a lot of problems to solve. So the roof is leaking, the house is falling apart and everybody's trying to figure out what's for dinner and who's gonna cook. Well, that is not a recipe for a successful country, we really do need to be focused right now. And you know, okay, so this is, I I mean, I I hate to alienate anybody in the crowd over politics here, but I'm going to offer two names in my lifetime who I think should be on the Canadian Mount Rushmore. They were both uniters of this country, and both of them had the courage to do big things. I didn't agree with everything they did, but they were brave. And Brian Mulroney brought in free trade for Canada, and that was a huge fight, and he didn't have to do it but he did and it had the single biggest impact on economic growth in Canada's long history. Jean Chrétien took on the debt in the country. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And they started balancing budgets so that we could stop we could really start devoting ourselves to other things. I mean, that's the job of the federal government. And the job of the provinces in my view, and this is set out in the BNA Act at our founding, is to look after economic matters in our own backyards, recognizing it's a huge country and the federal government cannot run an economy from Ottawa. It needs to be done more locally and we've split the country into economic units, so let the provinces do that work and let the federal government look after their knitting. But Jay, honestly, if they don't figure out how to stop being um, being distracted all the time, we are not going to solve any of these big, big issues.
0: I appreciate that, and I guess to be fair, you know, we're seeing civil division is not unique to Canada right now. We're seeing these versions of these eruptions globally, of course, down south, uh, throughout Europe, uh, throughout South America right now. I want to get your take on um, on media coverage in Canada, and you know, we can go back to the Alberta Sovereignty Act and Saskatchewan First Act because. Every single story that I've seen cover this legislation has been demonizing it dramatically, making statements like this is dangerous and nobody wants this, least of all the citizens of those provinces. And then the Saskatchewan First Act gets passed unanimously with absolute bipartisan support, NDP, liberals, and conservatives. So you tell me who doesn't want this, but why? Why? Why has the media taken that side so strongly? Any speculations?
1: Well, I I don't know how many um, writers at our national newspaper have a relative in their family who works in the resource sector directly. Probably not very many. And if you go to those newsrooms, as I have, there are many, many of them that have never been to western Canada. Mm. I mean, some of them have been to BC to, you know, travel the coast and but going to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh-uh. I mean, there's a total lack of familiarity in our national newsrooms mm. about what's going on in this part of the country. And more than that, you know, the more than just the personal uh, connection there is a lack of financial literacy in the media in general. So the idea that you could look at our balance sheet in Canada, recognize that the resource sector is the single largest contributor to our GDP, and then take that off the balance sheet and try and look at how we're gonna finance everything that we care about, isn't something that occurs to a lot of reporters. The last thing is, and I'm gonna say this in defense of the media, you know, uh, Craigslist took all the ad revenue away, and then Google took all the uh, took all of the eyes away, and the legacy media is really struggling to do a good job. It's really hard to find and pay great reporters and get really good stories out there. So I would also argue that it's become more difficult from their perspective but boy, their perspective is so limited. Mm. Gosh, you know, you wish you could send everybody at the Globe and Mail uh, a, a plane ticket to go out and spend a few days in Calgary and, and then a few in, in Regina and maybe Winnipeg and meet some oil workers. Maybe that would change the way they cover this stuff. Maybe they'd have some sympathy for what, how people feel out here.
0: Mm. I appreciate that. Now, I, I'm not a pessimist and I'm very optimistic on Canada's future. I will bet all day long on human ingenuity and progress and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So we we got a bit, but I think there's important issues we need to talk about, and, and those are a couple. So I'm glad we spent the bulk of our time on that, but tell me next, what makes you optimistic about British Columbia and Canada's future?
1: Well, the people. I mean, I don't think you can hold, you can't, You can't keep Canadians from succeeding. Government doesn't have the power to do that. I mean, it sometimes feels like they're working hard at it, but I just don't think Canadians, I mean, we care enough about this country, and we love it. I mean, otherwise, we we could all be, many of us could be in the United States most of the time, but we're not. We choose Canada, and people from around the world are coming to Canada to join us and help us build, I think, the most pluralistic society anywhere on the globe. Um, so we got people, we've got vast resources. We have an excellent university system, a great public education system across the country. I and mean, none of it's perfect, but it's really good. And um, I, you know, we've got some we've got, um, real assets. What we have are political problems. We have high taxation. We have a tangle of regulation. We have disconnected governments that are doubling up and overlapping. We have polarization. We have people that aren't working to solve problems, but instead working to try and create problems. But that's all politics. And you know, the thing about politics is you can change governments. Mm. And if you can change governments, you can change the politicians. And if you can change the politicians, you can get rid of some of those problems.
0: I love it. Look, Christy, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today, uh, getting in front of my audience, a real honor, a real treat. And I thoroughly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was
1: such a pleasure. Thank you very much, everybody.
0: If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.